Episode 2 of Lime Ninja Radio. My name is McKay Rippey. I'm your host, and I'm here with my producer, Aurora. Hello. We're going to be talking to Debbie Collins today. Aurora, will you tell us a little bit more about Debbie, please? Sure. Debbie Collins is a Lime support group leader. She is a resident of Chittenango, New York, who became a Lyme patient advocate after being infected with the disease as well as Bartonella. She co-founded the Central New York Lyme Support in January of 2011, along with three others whose lives have been affected by Lyme disease, and they meet on the first Sunday of the month at Sullivan Free Library in Chittenango. Thanks, Aurora. Let's get right to the interview. Hi, Debbie. Good to talk to you. Hi, McKay. To let people know a little bit about you, you live in Chittenango, New York, and where is that? Uh, it's about 12 miles east of Syracuse, so it's in central New York. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of trees and foothills and um, a lot of country here where I live. And Chittenango has two famous residents. There's you and then there's, tell everybody who else is from Chittenango. Uh, well, Carmen Bastilio, famous boxer, uh, but are you talking about the author, L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz? I am. Okay. It's funny, because <laughs> I, I attend a, a, a Lyme disease support group that Debbie runs, and it's in the local library in Chittenango, and the entire place is decorated as the set from The Wizard of Oz. It's hysterical. I love it. Yeah, we have a lot of town pride uh, with the Oz Stravaganza that comes every year. When is that? Yeah, about June, first weekend in June, typically. So I missed it again. (laughs) Again, yes. (laughs) I'll put it on the calendar for next year. Okay. What motivated you to start the support group? I had been recently diagnosed with Lyme disease, and I had quite a bit of trouble, difficulty after going through a long series of specialists to find out what it was. They had lots of different answers, and uh, most of them said it couldn't be Lyme disease, and they wanted me to go on this drug or that drug and... um, I, since I've had the bullseye rash four years prior to that, I was pretty sure it was Lyme disease based on the research that I had done at that point. And um, I didn't want to go down the path of psychiatric drugs or, or other pharmaceuticals that wouldn't really address Lyme disease if I actually had the infection. So... Um, after what I had gone through, I decided to um, get together with some other people who had similar experiences, and we would help people through the process 
working with the doctors, how to communicate with the doctors, how to ask questions. Um, and then if you get that answer, it is Lyme disease or it isn't Lyme disease, where do you go from there? So do you find that that's the biggest issue with people coming to the support group? How to talk to your doctor or how to actually get diagnosed? Uh, many times it is. Um, or they're diagnosed and treated with antibiotics for a, a short period of time. They still have symptoms. They still don't feel well. But their doctor is telling them now, well, it's not Lyme disease. It's in your head. Or it's not Lyme disease. It's something else. Um or even it never was Lyme disease. <laughs> so it's not that we want it to be Lyme disease. It's just that when there aren't good answers, uh, we need to better be better at asking good questions and keep it going, so we can get so we can get better information and not settle for you know not settled for somebody's pet diagnosis that really doesn't make us feel any better in the end. So how long was it before you were finally, or were you ever diagnosed with Lyme disease? or And how long was it before you were successfully treated? I was diagnosed of, uh, about four years after I had had the bullseye rash. I'd had a couple of bites on my arm, two little creatures that I didn't know what they were. Um, I scratched them off in the middle of the night, didn't think anything else out about it, and I developed a bullseye rash. I didn't put two and two together um, until eight weeks later. I was in the doctor's office showing him my circular rash and him saying, we don't have Lyme disease here. See that stack of papers on my desk? Those are all Lyme blood tests. Every one of them are negative. People come in and ask for Lyme tests all the time. They're all negative. We don't have Lyme disease here. You know, and he told me that. And, and this is this is your GP, your general practitioner? Yes. That was my doctor at the time, my local doctor. Um even though across from his office, just down the road a little bit, was a veterinarian hospital whose numbers of dogs with Lyme disease was steadily going up uh, in, in large numbers. I mean, it was over every few months, it was doubling again, the incidence of dogs with Lyme. So this this is something I've run across all the time, and I want to get your opinion on this because you talk a lot of different people. What's the disconnect? Oh, you go across the street to a veterinarian, and they don't <clears throat> excuse me, they don't have the mental block that the GP does. So on one hand, across the street, in a dog, it's Lyme disease, and on his desk, it's all negative. What what's going on? Well, the the test for Lyme disease in dogs um, is a simple blood test, as it is in humans, but it's much more reliable for whatever reason. Um, they can see it pretty readily. It shows up better in dogs. Maybe the dogs 
immune system are more, you know, called into action so the antibodies show up? I don't exactly know. But with a human test, it's been jimmy-rigged. Um, it's, it's really designed to keep all false positives. I don't know whoever started with the notion that there's too many false positives. In humans, it's a two-step procedure. First, an ELISA test. And if you get a positive for that, then they give you a Western blot. And looking at the body's antibody response to Lyme disease, the problem is with humans, it takes a while for the antibodies for the titer to develop, okay, too soon right after the bite. It's probably too soon within four weeks after the bite. Who wants to wait four weeks and then get a test? Um, So there's a reason. And there are many reasons, actually, that the line never shows up in the blood. Um, There's like 24 reasons for the blood to be seronegative for Lyme disease. You know, that's for a doctor to understand. Um, we shouldn't have to worry about that. But but we do, and that's one reason why you have the support group, right? Yeah. My family went through 12 negative Western blots. All four of us eventually were, you know, were positive for Lyme and we were treated. So that's that's one of the biggest hurdles to get over is you get bit by a tick, you go in and, and you don't know, maybe it could be Lyme disease or not. Um, you know, there's redness, there's swelling. The doctor may test you, but that test is useless so close to the tick bite. Um, and then another thing the doctor will use is the presence of the rash, the bullseye rash or a circular rash with a central clearing. Um, that's classic, but it doesn't show up in every person who gets Lyme disease. Right. Um, and, and in your case, you had the rash and the doc said, eh, it's not Lyme anyway, so I don't know what it yeah. is. Well, and he did test me. Oh, he, he did, did end up me. testing you? He did. And, and did you come negative. back positive or negative? I came back negative. Yeah. And that was yeah. eight, that's eight weeks after the bite? Yes. I should have been perfectly positive. Yeah. You know? That's plenty of time for your immune system to ramp up and really get attacking on it. So that just tells you how useless the test is. Right. And then, you know, with him, I was back in, I don't know when, maybe three months or six months later. I went back in, not even thinking about Lyme disease or anything. I had burning on the tops of both feet. I thought I had tendonitis. I could hardly walk. And he gave me steroids. Well, of course. (laughs) And steroids are like the worst thing you can give to someone who has an infection because uh, the steroids shut down the immune system. So you want the immune system to kick in and start fighting the bacteria, but you treat it with steroids and it shuts off the immune system. So maybe maybe the inflammation goes down and you get some relief, but 
the infection just spreads and moves on to another area. Um, and in my case, it moved to my elbow. I had tennis elbow, and I had knee problems. I had shoulder problems, you know, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. Then it would go away and move someplace else. Um, but never tied it together with with thinking back to the bullseye rash. If I had, I could have begun treatment much sooner. Now, and so here's a question for you, because you're a, a well-read, intelligent woman. And did you know about Lyme disease before you were bit? I didn't. Okay. So I, for you, it was just uh, just a complete blind spot in terms of education or awareness. Right. I did it through uh, a search for um, ringworm on the Internet. I was in my, my cube made it work, had a bullseye rash on her shin. And she said, yep, it's ringworm. <laughs> I've, had, I've had this a couple times now in different places. And so I plugged in ringworm and I said, I don't know, it's coming up Lyme disease. Because I don't have that little raised bump and it's not flaky on the inside. It's really very smooth and red. And <laughs> she goes, nah, it's ringworm. You know, so I went in thinking it was probably ringworm, but I read about Lyme disease on the internet. And um, really didn't have an awareness beyond that. Four years later, I had been hearing the stories of my friend um, who went through a couple of years of um, treatment for Lyme. She was an engineer. She had a bright future. Um, and on her honeymoon, she got a bit by a tick. Um, and it changed her life. She had brain fog. She had difficulty being an engineer, driving to work, doing her daily stuff. And um, although I was going through some of the same thing with brain fog and insomnia, I didn't put two and two together. How stupid was that? Um, because the doctors were telling me, well, it's, it's because of your age. You're, you're going through menopause or, you know, your insomnia is caused by stress from work. And I was... You know, I was buying that supply and in sinker, and I was just, I was just trying one thing after another under the guidance of an OBGYN or a, a you know, cardiologist or my regular GP. Um, until the moment that somebody pointed out, hey, if you had a bullseye rash, you had Lyme disease, and if you didn't get it treated chances are pretty good that what you're doing now is experiencing Lyme disease. Is, is the Chittenango support group part of a national organization? If somebody is, has your story, uh, they're frustrated with their doctor. They think it might be Lyme disease, but they can't either get the test done or the test came back negative and they just need some more face to face support. Uh, rather than just searching on the internet, how how does somebody get in touch uh, and find a, the local support group, their local support group? Well, the easiest way to find a local support group is to go on the internet and type in Lyme support group. Um, 
Chittenango line support is not currently part of a national organization. We are in the process of joining Empire State Lyme Disease uh, Association, which is a New York State group of support groups. There are other support groups in New York outside of that one, and there are many that just pop up here or there. Um, the places to go on the Internet for, I think, the best information would be ILADS, dot org. That's uh, International Lyme and Associated Diseases um, Society. And um, they have a structure, an organization that educates doctors and other uh, practitioners to be Lyme literate, um, to understand Lyme disease and supporting it and treating it. ILADS.org can provide a list of doctors in people's area. So if they say where they live, they can be sent doctors that may, may not be nearby, maybe two or three hours away or more, depending on where they live. But ILADS.org is helpful, and LymeDisease.org would be the other one. And there's, I, I just spoke with someone last week who wants to start one up in uh, Watertown, New York. We're helping her out, and another person I met met them on the Internet and then got to know them at a health fair, but she started one in Portland. And another one is being started in uh, Binghamton, so... It's just a process, and it just takes people who are interested in organizing the time and the space to have meetings. And so what. it seems seems like they're popping up everywhere, and they may not necessarily be associated with a big national organization or a big international organization. Search the web, search Facebook, right. t- talk to people, look look on the bulletin board in the local library, all that kind of stuff, right? Right, exactly. So now back to the second question. How how did you finally start getting treated successfully? Because you're doing pretty well right now. Yes. Um, I switched doctors. I went to a, a general practitioner who had been working with uh, my friend's daughter through her Lyme disease. She actually... Um, referred her to a Lyme specialist, Uh, but she worked on general health problems with her and coordinated her care with the Lyme disease. That was good. Um, So I started over with her. I had my records transferred. She read about the bullseye rash, and she really, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't just going to give me a diagnosis because I said I wanted one or because I felt I needed it. She wanted to rule out things like brain tumor and arthritis and other forms of brain damage because I, at that point, I was beginning to walk and talk like a drunk. Um, I slurred. I dropped words. I fell in the middle of a parking lot or in a store. I would just tip over, fall down. I had weak, wobbly gait. I had constant head pain where I wanted to stick an ice pick into my ears. 
to release the pressure. I was starting to have hallucinations. And I was sleeping no more than a few hours a night, every night. And then by five, my lights came on. I was wide awake. My, I felt like my brain was vibrating and I had to get up. There was no more sleeping. I actually functioned pretty normal in the first part of the day. Uh, in the afternoon was when I started losing my ability to read, losing my ability to walk, um, and I started talking funny. So my doctor was, my new doctor, ordered specialty blood tests through the Igenix lab in California. They do a little bit more thorough Western blot of the blood and reveals more more information than the ones that are done in New York State. And I was positive for Lyme disease based on the Igenex blood test. She sent me to a neurologist who specializes in the treatment of Lyme, but who isn't really on the Lyme literate doctor list. And he did his own Western blot on me, which came back negative, and he said, you, you don't think it's Lyme. He told me very quietly that the whole town has been under the guidance of the infectious disease doctors. They have issued newsletters and pamphlets about Lyme disease to the doctors telling them, do not overdiagnose it. It's not a big deal. It's easy to detect. It's easily cured with a simple round of pharmaceuticals. And so is, is, is this in Syracuse or in Chittenango? That was in Syracuse. Okay. So this, you say town, but Syracuse is, you know, it's not a huge city, but it's a fair-sized city. Yeah. Yep. Crazy. Uh, so he's getting pressure from, did you say the CDC? Or was it the state health department? No, the IDSA, the, the infectious disease doctors. Oh, from the so from their own professional association. Yes, they, that just makes me insane. They, it's like what what do they care? What what well, what is a doc association coming down and saying? Oh, doc, by the way, don't diagnose that because you shouldn't. They have written uh, guidelines. Uh, they haven't updated them since two thousand and eight. But the IDSA wrote a 50-page document. I've read it. Um, it's guidelines for the treatment, diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease. And um, they, they say that chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. And if you have Lyme disease, it's easily treatable with 30 days of doxycycline if you have neurological Lyme, then they might do 30 days of IV rocephin, maybe two months if you still have Bell's palsy and brain issues, they'll let it go two months. But after that, any more is, is wasted and they won't, the patient won't get any better and they should be treated for post-Lyme syndrome. So you send them to somebody for achy joints and send them to somebody for antidepressants and to somebody else for whatever problems that they have. But they stop, they stop treating the, the bacteria. 
right. at that point. They, they said because it can't survive that, and it done, you know, according to their tests, um, according to the journal studies that they cite, for which they're considering just the articles that uh, this group of physicians who sit on the IDSA actually wrote, they're using their own articles to support that, and they're not considering the whole world of knowledge. They're excluding some of their own studies that would suggest that Lyme indeed does persist despite antibiotics. So I've heard of, uh, there's a doctor out in Albany, uh, which is about two hours from us, and uh, she's in trouble because she has treated outside of the standard of care, and it sounds like the this organization has created the standard. Uh, and so it's really dangerous for a doctor to, to, to go ahead and treat openly about this, right? not so much treating outside the standard of care. Uh, she is treating longer-term antibiotics specifically for Lyme disease. Um, but in her case, she diagnosed a couple of kids who had been... Um, she provided a second diagnosis of Lyme disease because they had already been diagnosed with... One was diagnosed with psychiatric illness and was institutionalized. And the parents wanted a second opinion. <laughs> um, and I forget what the other one was, but these are kids that would not have gotten better without the antibiotic treatment. It's mind-blowing. We're going to look back in this in 10 years and everybody's going to say, what was going on? Recently in New York State, um a bill was introduced and it passed in both the uh, Assembly and the Senate to protect doctors treating uh, chronic illnesses, including Lyme disease, with treatments that are outside of a standard norm. So in other words, if the IDSA says that 60 days of antibiotics is enough, and the doctor thinks, well, this patient is relapsing or isn't completely free and clear of the disease. So I'm going to switch up, give them another round of antibiotics or maybe go a bit longer. They won't be penalized. Right now, the medical boards can be sent, hunt down, and make life difficult, put that doctor through an expensive review. And... Um, you know, for which the doctor must be legally prepared. That's just insane. It's crazy that you have to have a law to allow a doctor to pursue the treatment course that they think is best and they know the patient best. That's just insane. Well, you wouldn't have to treat someone with tuberculosis. You wouldn't have to treat someone with malaria. If there were symptoms... Um, ongoing, you would you keep going, and and you know acne. They'll they'll treat acne for multiple years, giving them you know ongoing antibiotics. But for whatever reason, someone has put their foot down 
and they get real cranky when someone will talk about persistent Lyme disease. Oh, I got to tell you this. I went in to get my mammogram and bone scan. The tech who I had a hard time getting off the table and um, I said something about, you know, Lyme disease or something like that. She goes, oh my God, I have Lyme disease. And then she started to tell me her story. And they would only treat her for 30 days and now she's going from, you know, one person to the other. And she said under her breath, yeah, they all think I'm crazy here. <laughs> like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I was going to give her a, a line support card, but I guess she took a little too long talking to me because when instead of bringing me back my my mammogram statement, the radiologist brought it back. And he said, well, I have good news. Your mammogram's normal. And I just wanted to tell you, though, that I, it detected that you have Lyme disease. I, I looked at him, and I thought, okay, that's not funny. But I, I laughed, and I said, well, it's everywhere, doctor. Don't you know? Then he proceeded to, I, I don't know, if he, he might have been mad because I was talking with the tech and feeding her with baloney because I was trying to undo what what they had been telling her. Like, you no longer have Lyme. You've been treated for 30 days. Um, and But this is the same man who just walked in the room and said, you have Lyme disease in your breast? How, and yeah. they could detect that how? Well, they couldn't. He was making a joke. Oh. Because, See, that completely, went over my, that completely went over my head. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. No, he was making a joke. That SOB. Yeah. And then he started asking me why I waited so long for my mammogram. And I said, you know, I'm in pressing over this and you know I've been sick with Lyme disease and I've had a lot of time to do a lot of research and he said well there is no research you know and he started picking at me and telling me things that he had no research to support reasons why mammograms are you know healthy as pie and yeah of course I should be getting them yeah you know once a week once a week it's good you know twice it's better and you know, sign up for the colonoscopy two-for-one special, too, while you're at it. So anyway, I I left very disturbed. <laughs> I didn't want the poor gal to be in trouble for talking to me for too long, but um, I slipped my card, my CNY line support card to the receptionist and he asked him to give it to her. You know, but I haven't heard. This is, it's insane. It really is insane. It's like, it's like underground resistance fighters. Well, but that radiology group was the only group of specialists that opened the door a crack for Lyme disease. Isn't that incredible? In their diagnosis. I, when I did my training with Greg, there was a radiologist. She was there. She goes to all these Lyme conferences. Her entire family has Lyme disease, and some of her children are just really stricken. You know, some of those hard, hard horror and heartbreaking stories. 
she's been told by friends and enemies, essentially, keep your head down uh, or if you value your job. She, she does say, and this is why I thought you were halfway serious, she says, I look at some of these uh, MRI brain scans and I'm sure what I'm seeing is uh, some form of the, of the spirochete or cyst. Um, she says, but I can't, I can't say anything. I can't say anything to these people. It's really, it's just the politics of this. It's just, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. You know, and there's nobody coordinating it. It just got set up in a really weird way. All the, all the bad is like all the bad influences in all these different systems all intersect at Lyme disease. It really sucks. Right. Which is why you need support groups. And so having people, you know, we're, we're easily influenced by those around us. And if what we're hearing is it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist, you need another voice saying, oh, yes, it does. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be coming from a doctor. It can come from a good friend or just a caring person. And that's enough to turn somebody around so that they have some hope and that they go find a doctor yeah. who isn't a closed-minded idiot and get some basic treatment. I mean, the stories you were telling yeah. is just fundamental stuff. It's just little extra antibiotics. I, I've had patients who've been on antibiotics, like you said, for the acne, but for, for other things for years. So what's the big deal? That don't get it. It's like they, they want to be right about something. It's like, this doesn't exist. We're not going to treat it. End of story. You're a bunch of internet hysterics. Get out of my face. Yeah. Sad. Well, this, I would just ask anyone that's so sure of that to go ahead and become infected with Lyme disease and let it go to chronic let it go to late stage and then get the IDSA recommended treatment and show us all. Huh. I love it. That's a great challenge. Put up or shut up. If it's so easily treated, it's not a big deal. Let's get you infected. Do your three months, one month of antibiotic, 30 days of antibiotic, and then see how it works out for you. Yeah. I like it. I think we should start it's, challenging people. <laughs> well, it's, it's everybody's evil dream that that'll happen to Alan Steer at Yale and and Kleppner and some of the other guys on the. <laughs> you know, that's the dark. The dark uh -huh. side of science is it's a blood sport, and there are many, many examples of these of different researchers just going after each other. You know, everything from fabricating data to character assassination. Um, to just intimidation. Yeah. And it's what, that's really what science is. And so as you kind of get, it's the same thing happens on the legislative level, level. We think it's all, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and there's these nice debates that happen on the floor. No, it's all, it's ugly. How this stuff really happens is ugly and it's egos and it's pressure and it's blackmail and it's all this stuff. And, uh, the, the good guys don't always win. Well. The Department of Health wrote a letter, a scathing letter to the um, politicians, New York State, state level, to tell them, do not pass this law. This is, this is just terrible to even consider. Right. That you're putting, you're jeopardizing all these poor patients that are going to be taken advantage of by the doctors. Oh, right. 
and um, yeah, did you did you perfect. did you oh. see that uh, the, the article that was talking? I think it came. It was at least on NPR about how many of these uh, essentially calling some of these independent labs who have this more specialized Lyme test mercenaries and that they're preying on these poor people. See, they, they have, they have, oh, yeah. <clears throat> they have the cart before the horse. They think these people are getting, spending money on these treatments because they're gullible and have been taken advantage of. And when in fact they're, spending extra money on these tests because they haven't been served by Western med- the standard medicine. They've been failed right. and they're desperate to try to find something. And they think it's the other way around. They think it's all snake oil sales. Nobody, yep. nobody wakes up, you know, there's nobody going door to door saying, here, come get a Lyme disease test. I did a quick survey of ALS and Lyme connection the other day and I found papers that would say we have all these ALS specialists lined up and none of them find any connection with Lyme disease. It just doesn't exist. You know, Lyme disease might look like ALS, but if it's not Lyme disease, you know, if it's ALS, it's not Lyme disease. And then there's another one that said, and they had the papers that showed like 10 out of 10 ALS patients were being tested for Lyme and coming out positive. And we're not talking about a number of 10 people, but they cited a study of like 500. And a very high number of them were positive by the Western blot, which misses a lot. So what do you... Who's, who's right? And, you know, the other thing that I read, I went on to read, was that if it's ALS-like symptoms, they're not served with doxycycline. That makes it worse for whatever reason. But if they have an IV course of a different antibiotic, they get better. So it's not, you know... You gave them doxycycline thinking you're taking care of it as Lyme disease, but they don't get better. That would be a reason to think, well, it's not Lyme disease. Well, that's not the reason. It's just for, for whatever reason, the doxycycline makes the Lyme disease worse in, in this cohort. the ALS. Yeah. But anyway, I, it's that kind of thing that why aren't doctors open to that? I mean, what if that was true? Well, the ones the ones who are open, it's because it's because we're mimetic creatures. That means we follow we follow the herd, and unless you've been personally touched by Lyme disease, I'm pounding the table here. I want to hear it. Unless you've been personally touched by Lyme disease, unless these doctors have been personally touched and have a motivation to step outside the herd mentality, there's no incentive for them to do it. Matter of fact, there's disincentive to do it. So they, that's, that's why. So we're, we're on the beginning cycle of, of how change happens. And it's brutally difficult. It's to get the herd to turn around. It's brutally difficult. 
but over time more more and more people will peel away and the old guard who's who's leading the herd will die off and so it'll be open to to new ideas it just that's just the way science and human beings work it's not you know there's no grand conspiracy it's just one of the weaknesses of human beings you know unless unless you've been and it the same thing happens with diet you know the same thing happens with a lot unless a physician has been personally touched by something and and starts doing the research on their own and then they come across all this research that you've taken a look at and they say oh my god i've been blinded or i've been told uh the wrong thing or inadequate education in medical school and uh then they then they become uh then they become advocates and are willing to fight back a little bit you know there are there are really good doctors out there so there is hope. Well, there is hope. <laughs> that is true. All right. Fabulous. You were fantastic. So what really impressed me about Debbie Collins is just the sheer amount of knowledge she has about Lyme disease. Absolutely. She has a ton, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I... Don't think I knew half of the things that she was talking about. Right. Every time I talk with her, she always has some golden nugget to share with me about Lyme disease, either about the disease itself or the politics or something new. She made it a mission when she got the disease to educate herself. And uh, she's incredibly knowledgeable. Yeah. And it's not only knowledgeable, but willing to share that knowledge and that passion with others through her support group is really impressive. I should let everybody know I do go to that support group almost every month, and uh, I, I really enjoy meeting the other people there. So that wraps us up for today. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, right, Aurora? Yep, just look up Lime Ninja Radio. And if you want some notes, some links to uh, – or the email link or some in more information about Debbie, where should they go? They should go to the show notes at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And if you have any feedback for us, any questions we or We love feedback. You can find us at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Please send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. That's all for this week. Bye-bye. See ya. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests.